So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode includes some discussion of sexual violence, so it may not be suitable for all listeners. At the end of the 19th century, gold was discovered in what is now the Canadian territory of Yukon, and it ignited dreams of a bonanza of wealth for more than 100,000 people. In successive waves, these throngs of mostly middle-class prospectors streamed to the unforgiving environment of the Klondike. Their adventures have been memorialized in our pop culture as examples of the idea that anyone can achieve wealth and fame if they take risks and put in hard work. But the truth is a lot more complicated. If you're religious, you would say that there was an original sin in the Klondike. That's Brian Kastner. He's the author of Stampede, gold fever and disaster in the Klondike. And to understand the sin that would shape the Klondike gold rush, you first have to know the miners' code. In the 1890s, before gold fever had overtaken North America, only around a thousand white prospectors toiled away in the Yukon, searching for their fortune. And the miners' code was the informal set of rules that everyone up there had to live by And everybody followed them because they were essentially for survival. Like, you don't steal other people's food. If you find gold, you tell other people. You can only stake so many feet of creek anyway. So you weren't losing out, but you had a lot more to gain if you would follow this code. And one of the men moiling for gold beholden to that code was a Nova Scotian named Robert Henderson. If there is a stereotype of a prospector of that wizened, and emaciated, half-starved loner. It is Robert Henderson. He had the gold fever from an early age and tried Colorado and tried other places around the world and had always heard about these riches from the Yukon and went up years before anyone else and spent several years basically working himself to death and finding very little and just keeping after it. Henderson arrived alone to the Yukon Valley in 1894 and had little to show for it besides malnutrition. He would eat meat for years. I don't know, it might sound like he was living large or something, but just living off of caribou after caribou, fighting scurvy, not having any other food, essentially, maybe some flour that he went and bought once a year. But on one fateful day in 1896, Henderson swished his pan through a creek coming off the Klondike River and saw what every prospector dreams of. 
shiny flecks of gold. He was elated and decided to make the journey to the local training post, not only for supplies, but to uphold his end of the miner's code, which required him to tell the miners in the area about his find. And on his way back to his claim, Henderson came across a man who would loom large in the legacy of the Klondike gold rush, George Washington Carmack. George Washington Carmack was an American. He was a former Marine. He was a deserter, kind of a 'er ne'er-do-well who just couldn't hold down a job and eventually goes north to Alaska. The term that first comes to mind is he was a drifter. I'm Deb Vanoss. I am the author of Wealth Woman, Kate Carmack, and the Klondike Race for Gold. So in his time, kind of drifting around, he was with a couple other people. He he went a little too late in the season, he needed to get back to the coast, but didn't have the supplies to make it. And he really was starving by his own admission. Carmack became friendly with some of the taggish people who were indigenous to the Yukon interior. He stayed with one family who let him live with them over the winter. And it wasn't too long before he married into that family. He marries a woman that he names Kate because he can't say Shawclaw, he can't say her name. And so he names her Kate. And it's really this indigenous family that keeps him alive with hunting and fishing and all of these, all these various enterprises. Carmack's marriage to a taggish woman didn't endear him to many of the other white prospectors, including Robert Henderson. Henderson embodied a lot of the racist, you know, colonial attitudes of the time, had no use for indigenous First Nations people, deeply racist. So when Robert Henderson came across George Washington Carmack, Carmack was with his wife, Kate, her brother, Kesh, known to history as Skookum Jim Mason, and their nephew, Dawson Charlie. And while the miner's code required Henderson to tell Carmack of his gold find, he was disgusted at the prospect of Carmack's indigenous family joining in. When Robert Henderson comes through and he says, well, George, you know, you're white, you can stake a claim, but I don't want anybody else up there, especially people like Skookum Jim. Henderson made it clear that Kate and Jim weren't welcome at a stretch of creek. And so George and his family decided to go look elsewhere to find their own creek. Henderson worked his creek, finding a few pennies worth of gold at a time, which was more than he'd ever had before. And a few weeks later, he came across another group of prospectors, and he asked where they were coming from. And they told Robert Henderson the news that would haunt him for the rest of his life. They were coming from a place called Bonanza Creek. It would prove to be one of the most significant gold finds in history. And they told him, that had been discovered by George Washington Carmack. Because of his racism, Henderson had broken the miner's code, and so Carmack had felt no obligation to tell Henderson about the glorious find. And when it came to the First Nations, he just didn't follow it, and he ended up losing out on his share of Klondike gold. But Robert Henderson wouldn't be the only man who missed out on the riches of the Klondike gold rush. Once the news got out, 100,000 people would descend upon one of the most remote environments on the continent. Most were lucky to leave with their lives. Today, we remember the Klondike as a kind of romantic adventure. But like so many of the stories we tell ourselves about Canadian extraction, that's a fairy tale. The Klondike gold rush 
was a man-made disaster that stretched the entirety of the Pacific Northwest. Mining is a dirty business, and it's what Canada does best. Three-quarters of the world's mining companies are based right here in the Great White North. But so much of this country from the very beginning was built on extraction. The Klondike Gold Rush was many things. A media conspiracy, a land grab, a humanitarian crisis. But it was also a lie. A lie that Canada has been telling about itself for over a century. I'm Arshi Mann, and from Canadaland, this is Commons. What is it that can drive 100,000 people, most of them with few skills and even less experience, to leave their homes en masse and try their luck in a harsh environment like the Yukon? Well, gold, obviously. But something more. There had been many gold rushes before the Klondike. California, Australia, the Fraser Valley, all of these places saw their share of people desperate to get rich quick. The Klondike was different. So many people gave up everything they had for nothing in return. But the strangest thing about the Klondike is that that's not how we remember it at all. There's something about the Klondike story where I feel like it's been literally literally sugar-coated. It is the Klondike bar. It is an ice cream bar, and it is smiling prospectors, and it's happy good time girls, and everybody found gold, and everybody got rich. Brian Kastner became obsessed with telling the true story. It was nothing like that. The Klondike was a Ponzi scheme. It was a conspiracy theory. It was misinformation and disinformation. It was fake news. In the years before Klondike gold was discovered, North America was suffering through one of the worst depressions in modern history, the Panic of 1893. And it makes sense from one perspective in that, you know, the economic downturn, the Great Panic of 1893, which, you know, in some ways was very much like the Great Recession. You know, people lost their jobs, banks failed, their mortgages were underwater, the railroads, which were kind of the internet of the time, were completely overinvested and those companies started to fail. You just had this general broad economic downturn. The rich got richer, the poor got poorer, people couldn't find jobs. Then in 1896, after years of hardship, the newspapers finally had some good news to report. On the one hand, you have the newspaper headlines are full of these stories of, you know, strikes and shortages and everything else. And then on the other side of the newspaper is this headline, Gold Discovered in the Klondike. And it wasn't just that there was new economic opportunity, it's that it was gold. The reports put out by the Yellow Press were mostly fabrications. In the Yukon, the rivers and fields were full of gold nuggets just waiting to be plucked. Any man with the gumption to travel north could strike it rich within a few days. And thousands upon thousands of people believed these lies. We might say very rationally now 
well, how could they possibly believe this essentially conspiracy theory or Ponzi scheme? But people were desperate and it wasn't the poorest of the poor. You needed a little bit of money to afford a ticket, you know, for the steamship to afford flour and shovels and, you know, a boat and all of these other things that it might take to get up there. And so it's interesting that it's more the lower middle class that really felt like, you know what, I deserve more economic opportunity than I'm getting driving the streetcar or putting pickles in a jar in a factory. Like there's more to life. And I I want my economic opportunity that the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts and everybody else have. Unlike today, it wasn't big corporations that tried to capitalize on this discovery. It was ragtag groups of individuals, all believing that they had the skills or the luck to strike it rich. Within months, Americans and Canadians packed their bags and headed north, bound for the Klondike. Most of them took steamships from Seattle or Victoria that docked at Skagway, Alaska, and from there, they planned to climb the Chilkoot Trail, which would take them over the mountains and into the Klondike. Today, there is a hiking trail of the Chilkoot Trail where you start in Skagway and you go up over the ridge and into Canada and into Bennett, and then you take the train back. And it's probably the prettiest, most physically spectacular, and most pleasant backpacking I've done anywhere in the world. It's just stunning, the combination of the glaciers and the waterfall and the sea and the way it rises out of that and the gorges that are cut. And then you come up over the pass and you look down into British Columbia. It's like, you know, the first morning of Eden or something. It's just absolutely pristine, gorgeous wilderness with these crystal clear lakes and the rivers and this water that is like the freshest water it feels like on the planet. Like it's just rained and it's it's the newest creeks. But a hundred years ago, the Chilkoot Trail was a far more daunting journey. And most of the prospectors came ill-prepared. These weren't seasoned frontiersmen. Most of them were urban and middle class. They were used to electricity and streetcars. And this is why there was the, the tragedy there, because it's not just that short little hike which is so pretty, it's just hundreds of miles going down the Yukon there and then trying to survive a winter. Men had to climb up over 50 kilometers, often in the freezing cold, and they were forced to bring a year's worth of supplies with them. So when they reached the summit, they would deposit what they were carrying, slide back down, grab more supplies, and do it again and again and again. For most, this journey was just too much. They threw away their prospecting gear and simply turned around. You see little pieces of it when you're up there, and the soles of the boots are still up there, and pick handles and axes and shovels that people eventually said, I don't need this, I'm going home, and they just dropped it on the side of the trail and walked away. Like, it's still sitting there, rusting. There was one other way up the mountains, one that wasn't as steep and theoretically could accommodate horses, making the journey far easier. It was initially called the White Pass, but it didn't take long for it to get a new nickname, the Dead Horse Trail. It was basically, you know, mud on top of slick rock up the side of a cliff. It was a little bit lower, but that didn't matter. There was you know, essentially these shelves overlooking this canyon. Most of these prospectors didn't know how to care for a horse, let alone one that had to be brought over by boat from the United States. 
They would pack all of their goods onto the poor beasts, whipping them all the way up the trail. Thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of horses that ended up dying. And when you look at the vintage photos that we have there, it's just bleached bones in the bottom of the creek, you know, as far as the eye can see. It's really incredible. Tappan Adney, who was one of the correspondents, he went up there for Harper's Magazine. And he said, as many horses that come in to the White Pass, that's how many will die here. Not a single one is going to make it. And he was a horse lover, and it was particularly galling to him just to see essentially horses whipped to death. He says that he saw one commit suicide. The horse just walked off the edge of the cliff because it had been pushed that far. It's stunning, the slaughter that happened there. Even with the horses, most of the men who tried to make it up Dead Horse Trail had to turn around and abandon their Klondike dreams. These mountain passes weren't the only ways that ill-prepared adventurers tried to make it into the Yukon. Those with a little bit more money tried to take a steamship all the way around Alaska and up the Yukon River. And the problem is the Yukon gets really shallow, especially in winter right before it freezes. And a lot of those ships froze in place and people starved as they wintered over stuck. So being rich didn't help you much. Others tried to reach the Yukon overland by taking what was called the all-Canadian route. And then some several thousand people thought, hey, I'm going to outthink everyone and I'm going to walk north from Edmonton or go up the Mackenzie River and then cross the mountains and try to come back down or go up the Stikeen River or go up, you know, these other telegraph road options. And those people just were swallowed into the wilderness mostly. There were no roads and little food. Most of the people who tried this route never made it to the Yukon alive. Of the 2,500 who left in the first wave, only 43 made it. And even then, the journey took them more than two years. In total, all of these tens of thousands of people desperately trying to get to the Yukon, whether over the mountains, by sea, or over land, constituted a massive humanitarian catastrophe. So really what you ended up with is a disaster movie, except a disaster movie that went from essentially Seattle west all the way to the Aleutian Islands and east all the way almost to Hudson's Bay. And you had this massive triangle of 100,000 people stuck in the snow, starving, not able to move on, you know, with the diseases and the freezing and everything else. And it was entirely a disaster of their own making, which I think is is both the farce and the tragedy of the whole thing. But perhaps the most frightening and foolish of these attempts was the journey of the New York and Bridgeport Mining Company. So Arthur Arnold Dietz was a young man in New York City who knew nothing about mining, but didn't know how to organize a group activity because he organized like basketball games for the Young Men's Christian Association. And he figured that he could organize a mining company and found 19 people to go up and they were gonna outsmart everyone. And instead of walking the normal pass, they essentially drew a straight line, the shortest line from Dawson City to the coast over the Malaspina Glacier, which is the largest Piedmont glacier in the world. A Piedmont glacier is one that's so large that it's spilled out of the valley that it's carved and is like a giant lobe of ice on the outside of the mountain range spilling into the sea. 
So it's this giant, broken, icy ramp up into the sky. Dietz thought that he was well-prepared. He'd recruited a variety of people for his team, including a metallurgist, former policeman, and others with skills that he thought would serve them well on their trip. They have matching outfits, matching uniforms, essentially, and hats that they called sombreros. They were going to march over the glacier and make it to Dawson. And if this sounds idiotic, it was. It wasn't long before they were lost on the top of the glacier. They began to lose their vision due to the intense glare of the sun off of the icy surface, and they had to wear blindfolds because it was so painful. As they trudged forward up the glacier's slope, they didn't notice the breaks in the ice that dropped hundreds of feet down. And, you know, one by one, people fall down a crevasse, uh, they get sick. By the end, they end up eating their dogs. They never make it close to Dawson. They winter over in, in one of the valleys in Alaska where they can't see the sun for several months because it's hidden behind a mountain range. Hiding out in a cabin, the group slowly began to go mad. Some of them tried to escape, but the frigid Yukon winter killed them. The few who made it to the summer tried again to find a way to the Klondike, but failed. After two and a half years, a ship finally found the last four surviving members of the New York and Bridgeport Mining Company on the shore. They were emaciated, half-mad, and nearly blind. We don't have any conclusive records on how many people died trying to make it to the Klondike, but the numbers are certainly in the thousands. The newspapers were saying that there was $70 million of gold in plain sight, like Easter eggs on the ground that you could just go and pick up. And so in some ways, 100,000 people were duped by what they read in the newspaper. Most of them never made it. The few that went, obviously, you know, very few of them got rich. But yeah, a lot of people turned around. But also, whether it was drowning or avalanche or starvation or scurvy or whatever the disease was, we just have no idea how many people died. For the few who did make it to the Klondike, they mostly did not find what they had come for. Most of the best gold claims had already been taken up by the prospectors who had been in the Yukon before the news about the Klondike made it south. But even those lucky few had to endure incredible hardships just to get at the gold that sat mostly deep underground. Gold settles. It's heavier than everything else that it's with. So to get to the pay dirt, you can't dig through permafrost. You have to burn the permafrost. They would have a hole. They would build this fire. It would burn all night long. And in the morning, they would pull out kind of the soaking wet, cold, you know, timbers, dig out this slush, send it up in a bucket to the top of the hole, build a fire in the bottom of the hole again, and then do it day after day after day until they finally, and this would take weeks or months, burned all the way down 50, 60 feet until they hit bedrock. From there, they would have to burn the ground horizontally to try to find the veins of gold and follow them along. And so once they found it, actually in most of these claims, the gold was really concentrated and they would just follow the pay streak along, essentially downhill, 
They would put all of this muck in a bucket, take it to the top. And then when spring came and it was no longer safe to be underground because now all this permafrost is melting in the sunlight or because it's been exposed, then they would just wash that rock and wash that dirt for the spring and into the summer. And that's when they would get most of the gold out was in that spring cleanup. And then starting in the fall, they would do it all over again. Kastner says that the fiery pits amidst the frigid Yukon landscape would have looked like a scene out of Dante. We forget that in Dante's Inferno, that hell is actually frozen. And the men who worked this way over that first winter, they were the lucky ones. Some of them did find gold and become fabulously wealthy. And all around them, the town of Dawson City quickly began to be built up. Dawson City started as essentially a muskeg field. It was swampy area that was the flattest area at the mouth of the Klondike River where the Klondike River flows into the Yukon. It was not ideal. It happened to be the best, somewhat flattest area there. And when it started, people just put up their tents. It was really haphazard until it was eventually surveyed and you ended up with kind of this small area and a couple streets. Initially, there were a few thousand people in Dawson. But as the Stampeders flooded in, the town grew to 40,000 in the course of a month. And, of course, it's still boggy. And so what you have is a mixture of timber hotels and a few timber houses and a lot of white tents and mud streets that are essentially, you know, half underwater. And you can't get a wagon down the street because a horse trying to pull it, it's, you know, it's up to the axle. But you had streetlights and you had electricity. So you had this mix of absolute poverty and and the mud and the muck and the tents. And then you had people bringing in plate glass windows and mussels and ice cream and all of these silks and all of these things to purchase. Most of the Stampeders had come too late, but that didn't mean there wasn't money to be made. The two groups of people there were the miners and those mining the miners. Mining the miners was a far more lucrative way to make money in Dawson City. That meant selling mining equipment and food, opening restaurants, hotels, and bordellos. And then there were the scammers and thieves trying to get whatever they could from the naive stampeders. And this is a crucial point to dwell on. Because if there's one myth about the Klondike gold rush that needs to be tossed away, it's that the Canadian side of the border was a safe place for everyone. The story goes something like this. In Alaska, the American government had little authority, and so it was gangsters and con men who ran the show. People had their goods stolen, and there was plenty of violence. But on the Canadian side, in the Klondike itself, the Northwest Mounted Police, the precursor to the RCMP, established law and order. And the man who embodies that story is Colonel Sam Steele. Men don't wear pistols in Canada. Canada be damned. I'm going to the Klondike. The Klondike is Canada. Pack those pistols in your saddlebags or get back to U.S. territory. In the days of the gold rush, a policeman, Sam Steele, became a legend of the Klondike. I don't know. At the time that Colonel Steele was up there, the Northwest Mounted Police were really a light cavalry unit. They were a military unit formed to pacify First Nations across the prairie and then eventually sent north 
to put the area under Canadian control. And Steele was very proud himself. And people in Dawson City were very proud that they were able to control crime, especially around things like petty theft. There was a saying in Dawson City that said that a prospector could fall asleep at the bar with a bag of gold on the counter. And when he woke up, it would still be there. And it's true that theft was severely punished. But so-called law and order only existed for the benefit of the white miners. The amount of crime that you would experience as a white man who was a prospector was very different than the level of crime you would experience if you were a woman, if you were an indigenous person who often ended up lynched in many cases that we have documented. It doesn't show up in the crime statistics if you try to go back and recreate that now because it simply wasn't reported. So if you look at reported crime, then sure. But you start to look at the oral histories or you just start to look at what's in the newspapers and you realize just kind of this parade of violence that was present on the Canadian side of the border as well. The vast majority of Stampeders were male and white, about 90%. But for the thousands of women in the Yukon, life was brutal and dangerous. There were women who worked as prospectors or as small business owners, but about half worked in the sex industry. Either they were actually working as full sex workers in brothels, maybe they were, were in a house and had a madam, maybe they were working on their own, or they were working as what was called a percentage girl, which meant that they would dance for a dollar a dance and make a small percentage of that. And they'd also make a percentage of drinks that they could sell in the course of those dances. And these women who were the dancers, their job was literally to dance all day, every day, and drink, drink with the men, sell the men drinks. You know, any party can run out, right? So after one day, two days, three days, two weeks, three months of this, you know, the women just reported being worn out and like truly awful conditions grinding these women to the ground. Alongside the dismal working conditions, many of the miners would become possessive over the women that they would pay to sleep with which led to numerous instances of sexual violence and even murder. They could buy many things with their gold, but they could not buy the exclusive attention of many of the women. And so rather than, you know, allowing a woman to take on a different customer on a different day, you know, a lot of women ended up dead or ended up, you know, abused or, you know, assaulted or whatever else in some way to be controlled. And what did Sam Steele and the Northwest Mounted Police do to the men who were committing this parade of crimes? So what happened to the men was nothing. And what happened to the women is that the first 25 or 50 or so that Sam Steele's men caught a month were fined. And they took those fines and they gave them to the hospital to run the hospital. So essentially, the sex work of the women provided health care to the rest of Dawson City, it's how they funded it, was through fines of the women who were working. Instead of protecting them, the Northwest Mounted Police extracted money from them. I struggled to talk about it in ways that don't sound exploitive to my own ears. Like, I, you know, like it, but it is, it's, it feels like it's just, it's one more exploitive, extractive industry that's adjacent and part and parcel of the other. The many Clinkett, Tagish, and Trondak Huachin people who found themselves in Dawson 
received similarly brutal treatment from white miners and from the authorities. Before the Klondike Gold Rush, it wasn't uncommon for white settlers to lynch indigenous people. As Dawson City grew, these lynchings just became official. I don't think that it is an anomaly that when hangings began in Dawson, when there weren't lynchings anymore, but now there was this facade of law and order, and once Sam Steele had set up his folks, and once you had that, I don't think it's a bug. I think it's a feature that it was indigenous people that were some of the first hanged. The four Nantuck brothers, who were taggish, were one of the first examples of this. You know, in the Nantuck brothers, there were four of them. They did kill a prospector. That's pretty clear. But out of the four of them, two of them died of consumption while in prison. And then the other two had to be hanged. And one of them, at least, was probably a child, was under 18 when that happened. The execution of the Nantuck brothers, one of them a child, was one of the first court-sanctioned executions in the Yukon. And it was one of Colonel Sam Steele's last official acts as the head of the Mounties in the Klondike. I don't think we should be surprised that that was the first way that justice was implemented. But the consequences for indigenous people in the Yukon were even more far-reaching, especially for the Trondakwetchen, whose traditional territory includes the Klondike. Now, most didn't stay. Dawson, you know, would go down to 10,000 and then fewer. But, you know, whether it was on the coast of Alaska, whether it was the interior of what would become the Yukon Territory, whether it was the Northwest Mounted Police, uh, the RCMP coming in, there was really an end of a lifestyle. There was an end of a sustenance lifestyle where really, you know, the people there would move. There was There was a place where you fish for salmon. There was a place for where you go hunting. There was a place where you spent the winter. They would move up and down the Yukon. And despite the fact that it was their land, the Trondakwetchen got little of the wealth that lay under the ground. The Klondike Gold Rush ended in almost as dramatic of a fashion as it had begun. It ended spectacularly in flame, which is maybe the only way it could have. In 1899, a major fire swept through Dawson City. Fire was a common threat in most frontier towns. The houses were mostly built with logs, and people used wood-burning furnaces to heat their homes. And once the fire began, it spread quickly, and a series of debacles ensured that it spread unabated. Sam Steele and his men were part of fighting the fire because You know, it was April and the Yukon itself was frozen. They didn't have access to water immediately. They had to burn through the ice on the Yukon River to get at water. And they had this brand new firefighting apparatus that would pump the water out through these leather hoses. But the fancy new machine required that a fire be kept burning so that the hoses wouldn't freeze. And because of a labor dispute with the firefighters, that hadn't happened. And so by the time they got the fire lit and then they started trying to pump water, the water froze in the hoses. And so the engine didn't even work in the end. And what they had to do was use dynamite to blow up buildings surrounding the fire to keep it from spreading. The destruction was almost total. The fire caused millions of dollars in damages and burned down over 100 buildings, homes, businesses, and hotels. Almost none of Dawson City survived. By that time, 
gold fever in the Klondike was starting to abate. Most of the tens of thousands of prospectors who had invaded the Yukon Valley had little to show for their years of effort. The best gold claims had long been taken, and there were rumors that gold had been discovered in Nome, Alaska, so men started to journey west. Others were so exhausted that they packed up their bags and just went home. After the fire, some stayed to rebuild Dawson, but this time as a pastiche of itself. It was essentially rebuilt almost in a tourist trap mirror of itself. It was rebuilt for visitors almost immediately. I mean, starting in 1900, a lot of people went to the Klondike as tourists to see what had happened. No longer was Dawson City selling a dream of getting rich quick. Instead, it was consciously trying to market a story about itself, a story about what the gold rush had been. Obviously, that's what Dawson is now. Diamond Tooth Gerties is a gambling hall, and obviously tourism is a big industry up there. That wasn't something that came later. That was something that happened almost immediately. And in many ways, that's the story that gets told today. That the Klondike was some great escapade full of daring deeds. That it was safe and lawful. That women and indigenous people were bit players somewhere in the background. But maybe the biggest lie of all is the story of how exactly Klondike gold was discovered. The story I told you at the top of George Washington Carmack, the racist prospector Robert Henderson, and of Carmack's taggish family, Kate Carmack, Skookum Jim, and Dawson Charlie. There's always the what-ifs when you look back at history, but it's hard to imagine George having stuck with it in the wilderness without Kate. That's Deb Vanass again, who wrote a biography of Kate Carmack. Like so many of the Taggish people, Kate Carmack barely gets a mention in some of the formative works on the Klondike, especially Pierre Burton's history. She was a strong woman in terms of her capabilities, culturally and physically in terms of survival, you know, snaring rabbits and that sort of thing. She was certainly not above expressing her opinion about things, but she was also jovial. George Washington Carmack suffered ridicule because of his marriage to Kate and his association with her taggish family. But he also benefited immensely. George Carmack had a reputation for being lazy and clueless. His taggish family were the ones who helped him survive many harsh winters. And when George Washington Carmack announced that he had discovered the mother load on the Klondike River, many of the other prospectors just didn't believe him. And they were right to distrust him. Because from all of the evidence we have, Carmack made that story up. He didn't discover the gold. It had been his taggish brother-in-law, Skookum Jim Mason, who had found gold in the water. Here's how the real story went. The most trustworthy information came directly from Jim and Charlie, who were interviewed separately by a third party, a surveyor in the area who took it upon himself to to try to figure out what happened. They had gone down the Yukon, but north (laughs) to, to where Dawson City is today. They were looking for Kate because they hadn't seen her for a year or two. And they were just concerned about her. So they went up that way and they found Kate and George putting up fish for the winter. George was planning to sell dried salmon for dog food to get them through the winter. And they stayed there with them for a little bit. They decided that they were 
A, getting sick of eating salmon because they'd had it was it was August and they'd had a lot of salmon by now. And B, they thought that they could also make some money by cutting wood. So Kate and Patsy Henderson, who's a young nephew, stayed back at the fish camp with the younger girls. And the three men went off into the wilderness. But soon, George Carmack and Dawson Charlie were too tired to walk. But Skookum Jim pressed on in search of food. Finally, he saw a moose across a stream and shot it. And as he was dragging the body across the creek, he bent over to take a drink. And there it was. Gold dust glittering just underneath the clear water. After Skookum Jim had found the gold, George Washington Carmack convinced him that he couldn't tell anyone that it had been him. He told Jim he couldn't because he was an indigenous person. And so he lied. And it's a lie that's been told over and over again in history. Not only that, but because he claimed to be the man to discover it, George Carmack got twice as big of a claim compared to Skookum Jim. Kate Carmack, because she was a woman, wasn't even able to file a claim. And then eventually he thinks of all of these claims by his in-laws. He thinks of them as his own. And he ends up taking legal control of them. George became rich and even a little famous. And it all started going to his head. Eventually, he took Kate down to California where he was from. And it isn't too long before he abandons her there. There didn't seem to be, there doesn't seem to have been an intent on his part to not come back. He left lots of stuff down in California. He was purchasing some land. He was right in the middle of doing many things. But when he got back up to Dawson to work the claim, he met a woman named Marguerite who owned a cigar store, which was a euphemism at the time for prostitution. And within about a month, they had left Dawson and gotten married. But that wasn't all. He tried to leave Kate, the wife who had helped him survive long enough in the Yukon to actually strike it rich, with almost nothing. George Carmack was a millionaire by this point. He tried to give her $500 to call it good. So that was pretty despicable, leaving her and then just, you know, saying, here, have $500 and go away. And, you know, I guess she was supposed to raise their daughter with that as well. There were lots of things that were really hard for her, but but one that I found especially despicable was how he disparaged her. And that is what followed her then through history. He tried to paint her as just a shrew that he couldn't live with and had to get away from. Despite being abandoned, Kate was able to leave California and make it back to Yukon. And that's where she stayed the rest of her life in a small little house that Jim provided for her. And she was happy in the end. When I think about the story of the Klondike discovery, I find it hard not to see it as a metaphor for the Canadian mining industry. George Washington Carmack took most of the gold through trickery and deception that was discovered by his indigenous brother-in-law. And just as he dug the gold out of the ground, leaving the land stripped of its value, he extracted what he needed from Kate and then abandoned her. George Carmack, like most of the people who had made a fortune in the Klondike, ended up spending most of it and leaving little behind. If you look at what really happened to this money, what happened to the billions of dollars that were eventually pulled out of the ground, most people that went up never became rich. 
Most of the First Nations who lived there never saw any of it. A few people kept it. A few people, you know, really lived that dream. Today, there's very little wealth left from what was dug up in the Klondike. There are still a few family fortunes that can be traced back, but not nearly as many as you would think. But one tangible legacy that remains comes from Skookum Jim Mason, the taggish man who actually discovered the Klondike gold. Like a lot of others who became rich, Skookum Jim spent much of his money on a big house and living large. But he really does put aside a bunch of this money into a trust. That trust is still benefiting taggish people today. Some of the money was used to help build the Skookum Jim Friendship Center, which is now the oldest existing indigenous organization in Yukon. And the Skookum Jim Friendship Center is still in Whitehorse and provides things like prenatal counseling and legal assistance and all sorts of services for the Carcross First Nation up there. But that, of course, is the exception. The fact that the Skookum Jim Friendship Center exists in Whitehorse and that any of this gold, the legacy of that is being used for any good at all, in some ways is an anomaly. It's a wonderful anomaly, but it's, it's of course, not the story for most First Nations across the country. While Skookum Jim's trust is an important legacy for his community, the truth is that all of the gold that was mined out of the Klondike was under Indigenous land. There was no treaty with any of the Indigenous peoples in the Yukon. That land was stolen by the Canadian state, and that gold was whisked away by private interests. The federal government only signed land claims with Indigenous peoples in the Yukon in the 1990s. But by that point, almost all of the gold had already been mined out of the ground. The Klondike Gold Rush was a rolling disaster that captured tens of thousands of people. When the first European explorers came to the Americas, they came here looking for gold. In the 1890s, that lust for precious metals eventually led men to the farthest corners of this continent. Today, instead of 100,000 people descending on a small patch of land, you have large corporations digging treasures out of the ground. But the legacies these mining operations leave behind are just like what happened in the Klondike. Workers with broken bodies, environmental destruction, the dispossession of indigenous land, sexual violence. The gold rushes have never stopped. They've just morphed into something different. That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please support us. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com and leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Brian Kastner, Deb Vanass, Pierre Burton, and many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at commonspod. You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production by Dami Lola Oname. 
Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer.